it is a body phobic field. Everybody is afraid. And I think what Paula and I are trying to say is we have to befriend the body. The body's got the answer. It's not the problem. It's the answer. It's just trying to tell us where there is disruption in this whole system about being alive and in relationship with other people. So don't shoot the messenger. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, I'm Ann Kelly, and today's topic has been highly requested, and it's extremely important. We're going to talk about eating disorders and our relationship to food. I think most everyone can relate to some aspect of using food in ways that's just not good for us, whether it's ignoring signs of fullness and just ordering that dessert anyway, or just forgetting to eat, or maybe gaining or losing significant amount of weight during stress or breakups. You know, our relationship to food, our emotions, our beliefs around our bodies can be so incredibly confusing and at times, you know, frankly, really shaming especially for those dealing with eating disorders. So our guests today, Paula Scantaloni and Rachel Lewis Marlowe, bring their incredible depth of knowledge and experience on eating disorders to us. So together, they've developed the Embody Recovery Model, which integrates trauma work, attachment, and somatic integration into the treatment of eating disorders. There are so many misperceptions about body issues and disordered eating, and Rachel and Paula help us understand why it's so difficult to just change our behaviors or to convince ourselves or someone else just to see their body in a different way. As you hear about their model, you're really going to be able to let go of judgment and shame, maybe towards yourself or towards other people, and understand just more compassionately what's going on and why. You know, but before we get started, I want to do a huge shout out to our two new co-executive producers, Cindy Geist and Lena. These are two new Platinum Patreon members, and we so appreciate you. If you want to know more about this, then hang on to the end of the episode and we'll tell you more. All right, let's jump in. Welcome, Paula and Rachel. So glad to have you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Anne. We're excited to be here. Could you all describe just the typical treatment process is for helping somebody with eating disorders? This is Paula. I'll go ahead and start. So eating disorders have traditionally been treated through a biopsychosocial model. And the bio component has been usage of pharmacology, refeeding, nutritional rehabilitation, and maybe some yoga. Okay. Included in treatment to support the body right? Mm-hmm. In optimal functioning. The psycho part has been education about emotions and emotional tolerance, lots of dialectical behavioral therapy and supportive therapies to support emotional processing and cognitive distortions, cognitive behavioral treatment to address the distortions and then try to change the behaviors by changing the cognitions. And then the social part has been looking at family and dynamics around having a place and belonging and your sense of belonging in the world, in the culture, in the family. And so that's the traditional model. And it's usually a treatment team, a dietitian, a therapist, maybe a family therapist, a psychiatrist. There's often a physician on board. And these are all very important members of the team, particularly a physician who can sometimes be the one who's keeping an eye on medical complications that may arise from prolonged eating disorder behaviors. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's your traditional eating disorder treatment that we are working to enhance. Mm -hmm. Well, and the two of you have felt that there's a significant aspect of 
the person that's missing from uh, this kind of treatment, that it, it covers a great deal, but there's some aspects of treating the person that is left out of this. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think that in order to talk about that, we also have to talk about how recovery has been viewed, right? That if the goal of recovery is to get somebody to eat and to eat a prescribed amount of nutritional food in order to achieve sort of this range of BMI or body size or shape that is sort of deemed normative, to eat that much and to eat it in what we call a normative style, which is a very relative term, we're often really overlooking what has been the driving force of the eating disorder. And we haven't really been able to include in the treatment approach a way of being curious about what the body is saying and expressing through the eating disorder behaviors because so much of the focus has been on how are these behaviors sort of a response to an attitude towards the body itself. And I think what we're doing is what has been missing is a way of listening to what the body is saying through the eating disorder behaviors instead of trying to get the eating disorder behaviors to stop so that we can then do something else. It's like, how do we work with the body instead of against the body or about the body? It's how do we bring people into that relationship so that the focus of recovery is actually about embodiment as opposed to behavior change, you know, relative to how you eat or what you eat. With the idea that when we're actually working with our body and we know how to dialogue with it, then from a bottom-up perspective, it's going to support us in our relationship with food. So often with different types of eating struggles, the concept of the body image is so important. But I think about people like maybe somebody very thin with uh, eating disordered behavior, and yet you could speak with them and they have this concept of really disliking their body or seeing their body through an image that doesn't match ours. And a lot of people seem like they try to just convince them otherwise. Look, you have a distorted body image. You're not seeing your body with the right image. It's like this cognitive as if you could sort of shift that way of thinking by pointing it out. Not so effective. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to talk about that at all? Not up to this point. What we want to do is help providers consider shifting body image through shifting the subjective experience of the body rather than shifting thoughts. And so there's a researcher, Walter Kay, who's done a lot of work on body image and understands that the insula is particularly important in terms of body image. And so how do we support clients in activating the insula more, our ability to identify sensations in the body, the ability to understand if we're hungry, if we're full, if we're hot, if we're cold. So it's our interoceptive capacities. If we can enhance those processes, then the subjective experience of the self becomes stronger. The subjective experience meaning just what one thinks of oneself, like the the one personal experience? It's, It's not so much what people think about themselves, but it's actually the experience of the body and through the body. And this, Paul used the word interception, When we're talking about body image, part of what we're looking at when we have people who have distorted body image, what's happening is that the visual image that they're getting through their eyes, which is a far sense, right? It tells us about outside, and so they're seeing this image of themselves outside of themselves. And the interoceptive message, those signals they're getting from their body inside, it's not matching up. And that's the subjective is like, what is the information I'm getting about myself through these mere senses inside about me up? And one of the things that happens with body image distortions is that there's this mismatch. Some people, they have really, really loud signals coming internally. They're feeling everything in their body on a cellular level. And it's just like coming into the brain super loud and big and tight and they're feeling all this stuff. And so they look and the visual information that they're getting is impacted by the internal sensations they're having. 
right? I mean, and we all have this on different levels. Like, you know, even like sometimes if my hair is dirty, right? And I can feel that on my head and I look in the mirror and I just look different to myself because what I'm seeing is going along with what I'm feeling. So I make sense of that differently. And then my thoughts are an attempt to make sense of that. And when someone is getting super loud signals from inside interceptively, they feel huge because the inside noise is huge, right? And so that's when from the outside we're looking and everything looks, oh, it's fine. It's still, it's this size, but inside it doesn't feel that way at all. That makes so much sense, Rachel. So what you're saying is that we have to listen to how the body is speaking, not just the head. Is that what you mean when you speak about embodiment? Can you say more about that? I think actually there's two things that I would say. One is that we are really looking at how the body speaks through these internal sensations, through the the far senses, you know, our eyes, ears, nose, touch, et cetera, that we're familiar with. And it also speaks through movement. And so these are all different ways that the body communicates and that we communicate with and through the body to each other. And when we're talking about embodiment, we're talking about an intersection of our awareness and our physical container. We're talking about our consciousness and our physical body and where those two things intersect. So it's not just what we're aware of in our body. So when we talk about increasing embodiment, we talk about increasing what we're aware of, right? Are we aware Mm -hmm. of the world through our senses? Are we aware of our internal organization? you know, our proprioception, our neuroception, our vestibular organization, our interoception. But we're also talking about being aware through our body, right? And so what we see is that eating disorder behaviors are a window into places that we aren't embodied, where we are not fully embodied, and that our relationship with our senses with our inner world, ourself, and with our outer world, that relationship, basically our attachment, is reflected in our relationship with food. Start to listen to what the dynamics of the relationship are in our relationship with food. It gives us a direct clue as to where we aren't embodied. Right? And there's three main areas that we look at, which are, how are we organized in our sensory system? You know, and what is the role of sensory processing disorder and sensory processing issues in eating disorders? Can you say a little bit more about that one? So when we are in utero, prenatally, there are things that can happen that have to do with genetics. Some have to do with mom's own maternal anxiety or maternal stress. Some things might have to do with cellular or the process of being born that can impact our primitive reflexes, early reflexes that set us up for survival the first year of life. And when those are impacted, we have sensory processing issues. Okay. So you're speaking about in that one, the organization of the sensory processing system. So it can happen the first trimester. It can happen during pregnancy. It can happen at birth. And so we find with eating disorders, that is part of the equation. That system is not working optimally and can be for different reasons. But trauma, trauma can also throw that system off as well. So you're speaking about trauma even during the early part of childhood from conception and even generational trauma. Impacting attachment and attachment strategies in ways that information and sensory input is happening and how we've interpreted it and how we relate to our bodies in the world. Is that accurate? Yes, and how we interpret the information. And then that can influence attachment. They all intersect. The sensory processing impacts attachment. Trauma can impact attachment. You know, you get the three of them together the information and what's being processed and how it's being processed. And I think that when you asked about how does the sensory processing show up or impact our relationship with food, it can impact it 
we think about sensory processing in sort of three different areas. One is the, the sensitivity, right? So if somebody is highly sensitive to textures, to smells, even to sound, whether it's the sound of chewing or it's the sound in the environment, for somebody, if they are hypersensitive to sound and they can hear the buzzing of fluorescent lights, and that sound is creating, when we're talking, this is where we can kind of pull in polyvagal theory, all of those things are impacting the ventral vagal system. And when that system gets overloaded and overwhelmed and it starts to shut down, then we're going into sympathetic or dorsal states, neither of which are going to give us a bottom-up support for effective digestion, ingestion, digestion, and elimination. So we have to be aware of what is impacting the sensory system so that we can feed the senses in a way that supports ventral vagal engagement. And that's something that is often overlooked. We're in traditional eating disorder treatment where it's all about, you know, can you, you know, successfully eat in a restaurant or can you, you know, eat in a cafeteria or even in a, you know, in a treatment center where it's just sensory overload, right? And one of the things that we have done is to help you know, educate clients, family members, clinicians, treatment centers that we really have to pay attention to what helps resource the sensory integration system, right? So, you know, do we need to have people with weighted lap pads or products to help give them proprioceptive input so that they can better manage information coming in through their eyes or their nose, you know, because we can see how sensory integration shows up in difficulties with food preparation, with ingestion, because the sensory sensitivity is only one aspect of sensory processing. There's also our motor response. And some people have difficulty with motor coordination. They can't cross the midline. So preparing food, cutting food is difficult. They have difficulty with oral motility, and so they can't create, you know, something that they can actually swallow easily. And these are sensory processing issues, right, that are often completely overlooked. And what's focused on or what we're able to get a cognitive frame for is, I don't like food, right? It's uncomfortable. That's where the eating disorder thoughts are often the only cognition that's available to explain this subcortical almost process that's happening dramatically and traumatically, right? And for people with sensory processing disorder, the whole world can feel just overwhelming, just being does. And until we can really listen to, well, where is it difficult to prepare your food? Oh, I don't like to touch slimy things. Huh, interesting. So there's some tactile stuff or people who are like, I have to brush my teeth after I eat. I can't stand, you know, if there's any like little something in my mouth, I'm afraid I'm going to get fat, right? Well, part of that maybe, you know, maybe that is really what is happening or maybe those are the only thoughts that are available to explain this really loud sensory experience of having something caught in your teeth that for most people would be no big deal, for someone with sensory processing issues who are orally tactically defensive, it's huge. So yeah. that's where we have to start really listening. There's so much shame oriented around the idea of eating and disordered eating and having an eating disorder and so much approach, especially from even therapists who are trying to help somebody in this wonderfully caring way to help them point out things or maybe try it through a behavioral modification, getting you know more comfortable for et cetera. What you're saying is there's this, so much going on internally that could be from trauma, from early childhood experiences, from in utero, intergenerational, that has impacted how someone has can process sensory input that is so loud for them. And if we're ignoring that, how painful that is, but in actually really giving... I can imagine people feeling such relief, like this is why I'm feeling or thinking this and having people to tell me to stop doing it or to just modify it would be so painful 
but I love how you're giving the idea of the embodiment. This is another part of the embodying, I imagine, of getting to know your own sensory and listening to people. What are they actually saying? And instead of changing it and trying to get them to stop that, I hear what you're saying is trying to understand that on a much deeper level about what your body is communicating to you, getting to know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that we haven't mentioned too, Rachel talked a lot about the restriction, but you also can see it with the binge eating. Someone who may binge eat in order to try to regulate some of that sensory challenges of navigating Mm -hmm. information coming in. Yeah. It's definitely not just something that you see with restriction. Right. Because we can have avoidant responses like people who they're sensory avoidant, but they can Mm -hmm. also be sensory seeking right? In order to engage something, it's like they're going to be seeking certain sensory input. And sometimes that is manifest in in like binge eating. That makes sense. Whether you have a disordered way of binge eating or whether just, I, I think most of us could relate to periods of binge eating, especially around times of stress or distress and that it's a sensory activation in us that we are responding to. And what we're doing now in this conversation is starting to weave into this other area of embodiment that we look at, which is how do we embody the somatic scaffold, the somatic platforms of attachment? So one of the things that we do in our model is we look at these relational dynamics that build the capacity for attachment, We do a lot of weaving different models and different maps. So this particular map is from Bonnie Brainbridge Cohen's work in body-mind centering and something she calls the relational cycle. And it is illustrated in our basic developmental movement patterns of yield, push, reach, grasp, and pull. But these are movement patterns that are dynamics, right? And they exist not just in voluntary movement, but in the primitive reflexes, in cellular movement. You have these expansion and contraction kinds of movements that build the capacity to both connect in attachment and also to disconnect in our acts of defense. You know, how do we distance ourselves or how do we come into connection? We look at these dynamics and see, you know, how are we fully embodying those? And where aren't we fully embodying them? Could you give us an example of what you're speaking about? Sure. So we could maybe start with the idea of what we call yield. Now, yield in this case is not like submit or get out of the way, but it's to actually, how do we rest fully? You know, almost like floating in water, you know, or like a baby being cradled by a caregiver in that perfect relaxed state where You're fully who you are, and you are just in relationship with something else. You know, you don't have to do anything. You can just be. You can almost like see if you can almost start to feel that experience Mm -hmm. of just like, oh, wow, you know, I'm just right here. I'm in a hammock. I'm swinging. I'm just being. Being able to embody that, that phase of action, that rest is an important action. It's not the absence of something. It is the presence of something, right? And when we can do that, that is an essential part of the cycle of ingestion and digestion. It helps us know enough. I'm done. I can just finish. I don't have to jump to the next thing, right? I can land. And that is a really important piece of being able to take in food and swallow it and finish a bite of food before I take the next one Uh to know when is enough and how do I complete something before I go on to something else. And so it supports this capacity of I'm enough, there's enough, I've had enough, I know what enough is. And when we lack that embodied knowledge of enough, we see all kinds of things happening. I don't know when to stop exercising. I have perfectionism. I can't stop eating. I can't even stop not eating. I don't know when have I lost enough weight. And it can feed into this sense of this place where we're caught between 
scarcity and excess because we don't know what enough is. And so we may feel like everything is too much or not enough at all. And that shows up in all kinds of ways in our relationship with food, but also in our relationship with people. Well, I can imagine it shows up for all of us, whether we're dealing with a concept of eating disorder or anything else, that idea of being able to slow down enough to actually feel what you're describing is yield and the openness and to feel secure enough and to slow down enough to do that. Yeah. And some of the things that can impact the capacity to yield are birth trauma and having a stuck startle response, the moral reflex. So we can go back and look at the somatic organization that prevents us from being able to yield as well as the attachment environment and if that supported yield or not. Yeah, one of the things that we like to emphasize is that because we're looking at these fundamental dynamics, then when we get to this multidisciplinary treatment team, right, which includes the client, the family, the nutritionist, the therapist, you know, and maybe now the yoga therapist or the hands-on body worker, that everybody in their own realm can start to explore, well, what does yield mean in this situation, right? How does the dietitian help the client understand what enough is? And it may be that they're starting with an external cue Mm -hmm. for what enough is because they don't have a felt sense of it, right? But maybe that's part of what they work on. Or how do we eat and take a pause and take a breath and fully exhale before I take my next bite? You know, so we're getting just to the mechanics of ingestion, but maybe we're talking to the family therapist and this is about grades and it's like, well, how do we help there be a sense of what actually is enough and enough for what? How do we help um, bring some light into how that sense of enoughness is or isn't modeled in the family setting versus the yoga therapist who maybe go, okay, we really need to work on Savasana. How do we support you in yielding? How do we work with restorative yoga practices maybe, or even in aerial yoga where you're hanging in the hammock, right? How does the touch therapist work on, you know, maybe it's just a kidney hold, or maybe it is working with the craniosacral rhythm versus somebody who's working, you know, more muscularly. I mean, so we're looking at all of these different disciplines. How does that dynamic, that attachment dynamic manifest in all these different layers of organization? And how does each member of the team address it? Yeah, that sounds so impactful. And I imagine each member of the team feels very integrated and as well as the person themselves understanding from this very non-shaming place why yielding is so scary that may actually bring up the concept of anxiety. I mean, for some people, the idea of just taking a break and waiting, that in and of itself is sitting out there and listening to this, you might feel the anxiety in that to stop and really rest. And I think, Paula, that was, you had tapped on that too when you were talking about understanding from an attachment place, why that anxiety might be present, like helping them understand that. Yeah, one of the things with clients that I try to do is bring them into a here and now experience of resting on the couch Mm. and what it means to be in relationship. Can they feel their back? Can they feel the couch there and allow the couch to support them? And can they yield into the support And it's not surprising that many cannot yield in that support. Mm -hmm. The embodiment exercises over and over again, we're training the nervous system to do what it didn't get to do in the first three years of life and these developmental tasks. So you're going back literally and training the system as we talk about neuroplasticity that our whole life we can really reorganize and retrain our brains. And so you're saying you're going back and retraining maybe this very essential developmental period in their lives in a new way. And some of the material is Bonnie Brainbridge, Mm -hmm. and some might be things that an occupational therapist might be doing with Mm -hmm. a child. So they're not cognitive strategies. They're somatic-based strategies to support that scaffolding Mm -hmm. that is not there. Yeah. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Very helpful. So when you talk about the three different elements, you talked about the sensory system, the somatic platform. And what was the third one? So it's all about a somatic platform of the sensory system, of the attachment system, and then of the defensive system. And so that's where we start to bring in the impact of trauma. And one of the things that we want to make sure we're talking about is that people have different definitions of trauma. And what we'd like to do is to differentiate that trauma is sometimes used to describe something that is fundamentally impactful to us on this foundational level. And it's important to differentiate between whether that impact is truncating our attachment system, that system that brings us into connection, or is it impacting and truncating our ability to defend ourselves and separate, right? We want to differentiate those two. So we've got the sensory system, we've got the attachment system, and then we have the defense system. And looking to see, is that defense system intact or was there something that has been incomplete and is still trying to resolve? Because if we haven't been able to fully complete a defensive action, our nervous system is dysregulated and isn't going to support digestion. It's not going to support ingestion, digestion, and elimination. So before we start asking people to change their eating behaviors, let's make sure that their body is supporting what we might want to call normative eating. And if it's not, can it give us clues as to what's the missing piece? Because we don't want to be trying to get someone to engage in an attachment action when the reason that their body is dysregulated is because it hasn't been able to complete a defensive action. And we also understand that in order to have effective actions of defense, the capacity for, let's say, an effective defensive pushing or fight response requires that that action of pushing is first supported in relationship, in positive relationship. I've got to be able to push into something and get good solid feedback and coordination of my body, my proprioception, my muscles, before I'm going to be effectively able to push something away, right? It's like I've got to be able to push myself up to stand before Mm -hmm. I can jump. So we're looking at sort of the dance of those three elements, sensory attachment defense. And I love how you both are bringing in the digestive system because you don't really hear very much about the digestive system in general when you think about the treatment of eating disorders. Which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Isn't it? We don't really talk about the body much. It is a body phobic field. Everybody is afraid and I think what Paula and I are trying to say is we have to befriend the body. The body's got the answer. It's not the problem. It's the answer. Absolutely. It's just trying to tell us where there is disruption in this whole system about being alive and in relationship with other people. So don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) That's so powerful. Can you give us an example of somebody that you've worked with, obviously, I would want this to just to be theoretical and not anybody specifically, but just somebody that may be coming in and let's say, suffering from a highly restrictive element of anorexia. How might you just as an example, run through these three things about how the digestive system is shut down? Can you give me an example just of somebody that you could think of that you could apply this to? Well, a lot of the times with my clients, I will bring out the window of tolerance and start to teach them about polyvagal theory and digestion, and that digestion cannot occur if you're outside of the window, and help to explain how their window is likely small. So that's part of it, right? So the birth experience or the deficits in the attachment system you know, impacted the size of the window, and then life happened. And so the eating disorder has become a way to manage having a small window. So when you say the small window of tolerance, can you describe what that means and why she or he may have that small window for somebody that's not as familiar with polyvagal theory as many of our listeners are? When we have a robust window, it enables us to identify when we're hungry and when we're full regulate our temperature, regulate our physiological state, regulate our emotional state, reach out to others when we're in distress, 
be present, move from sympathetic arousal to parasympathetic with ease and flow. That's my definition of having a robust window. And so when life happens, we can manage and sort of ride that wave. But when you come into the world with a smaller window because of something that's happened with the primitive reflexes or there's trauma physiology running the system because of birth trauma or attachment deficits, then the window is not robust. And so you're going to live outside of that window more of the time and develop strategies, accommodations. These can look like food and body image issues. They can look like perfectionism. They can look like workaholism. They can look like substance abuse. It can look like anything we do in order to feel more regulated. And with eating disorders, what's happened is they've just gotten, that's the only choice they have are those behaviors in order to come back in the window. And what needs to happen in that window is developing safety and trust in relationship is not there, right? So the choice to utilize relationship when you're under stress is not an option. What you're saying is in order to use a relationship to help co-regulate or to help somebody could be there for whatever reason, whether they're not available or they're available because of whatever you can't utilize them. So you don't have that resource available to co-regulate. So in some ways, it's a functional way of developing a co-regulation to regulate yourself because we all have to regulate ourselves, but then it is something that becomes very devastating. Yeah. There's an SEP, Kathy Kane and Steve Terrell, who've coined the faux window. What they've developed is a faux window that helps them to feel as if they're regulated when indeed it's an illusion of regulation. And so, um, so part of the work with a client initially is explaining these concepts, writing down their defensive accommodations on a big whiteboard so we can label them. And demystifying this whole relationship with food, taking it away from food and looking at what's underneath and what's running the show. And I would say across the board, I find it to be eye-opening and non-shaming and very helpful for clients that I'm treating have been in therapy years and years and years, have had several you know, admissions to treatment centers and I think they feel like they finally have something that explains things that makes sense to them because they know it's not about the cognitions, right? But it's the only option they have for treatment. So they go because that's the, what's available. So it's not until they find us that they feel, oh, okay, I think this is getting to what's really going on. Oh, that's so powerful. That's exciting that y'all have been able to reach out to people in that way that they know it's not about cognitions. I love it when you said that because it's so true. You like, like we said a few minutes ago, you can't just change. Stop thinking that way. Look at your body. It looks wonderful. You have a distorted belief about yourself. You can't just do a cognitive access, help somebody change that. So it seems like y'all's model has just opened up so much of the non-shaming. Oh, now I understand. Especially when you speak about the foe, you know, you take away the thing that makes them believe they are calming themselves or regulating themselves. How scary that is. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say it's like that it's something that they do because it helps them believe. And this is sort of that idea of control. You know, it's like this is for me, the eating disorders aren't a, a choice. It is what their body is telling them to do. It's like saying, I don't have the capacity to digest this food. I don't. That's what the body is saying. And so they don't, or I don't have the capacity to slow down. I can't find enough, right? You know, I can reach out for it and I can prepare all of this food, right? You know, and I can maybe even chew it, but I can't accept it all the way in. And so I'm going to purge this back up. These behaviors are trying to communicate to you the state of dysregulation I'm in. You know, so it gives us a little bit of a sense of not getting more dysregulated, right? And so it's like, no, please, you know, I don't have enough attachment relationship to come all the way into regulation, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have enough ventral vagal to come fully into the window, Mm -hmm. but I'm trying not to go any farther out. 
And if you're going to tax my system to get it to do something that is breaking the rules of engagement, mm-hmm. you know, it's asking me to embody something that is not available for me to embody, mm-hmm. then I'm going to go all the way out. This is barely keeping me in the roller coaster. Mm-hmm. So don't take my seatbelt off while I'm still on the roller coaster. Wow. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. No, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And it may, again, coming back to deepening everybody's understanding of what's going on, especially when you said your digestive, your body's just saying, I can't do this. Right. Our job is to go, oh, okay. This is where we get to the, how do we resource you mm-hmm. by resourcing your body? If your body can't do this, well, what's missing? What's missing that will allow your body to do this? And so back to the example of that Paula was using around helping someone find yield. And I remember working with somebody specifically on this and she was a binge eater and she couldn't find enough. She couldn't stop. And so we were working with, you know, can you feel the couch and behind you or beneath you? And maybe she could find it beneath, but not behind, you know? So we really started to explore it. It's like, oh, what does it feel like? Can your back feel it? Oh, right. And she eventually did. And she went, oh, stopped. And she created this lovely silence in the room. It was a rich silence. It wasn't the absence of sound. It was the presence of silence that was calming. And she was even able to say, oh, this is enough. It's enough. It was like beautiful. And then she said, well, why didn't you just tell me to relax? (laughs) I didn't want you to relax. I wanted you to find the couch. I wanted you to feel the relationship right? Mm -hmm. And so when you were talking about your example of like, what do we do with someone who's first coming in, you know, and they're, and they're so restrictive that they can't even, you know, take in nourishment, right? I'm looking at, well, what's happening in their sense of belonging in the world? It's not about taking up space, but it's about creating space, about finding spaciousness. So I'm working from the moment I meet them with kind of what is our relationship mm-hmm. in just being, how do they come into the room? How do we help them start to, in this moment, have a felt sense that they have a, a space, they have a boundary? How do they come out to the inner edge of their boundary? How do they let their eyes come into contact with objects in the room, far away, close to them? How do they go back and forth between distances? So, you know, we're kind of working the nervous system. You know, we're really starting from, from just really basic, like how do you breathe? Mm-hmm. Do you breathe? And how do you feel your sense of regulation? And can you allow there to be another person in the room with you? So often we start jumping into treatment before someone's actually even in the room. And we think mm-hmm. if the outside is quiet, then they're okay being there. And half the time we don't realize that they're pretty much dissociated. It's another piece of embodiment. It's not about talking about your body. That can be effective dissociation because my cognitions and what's act in my body are separate. It's, can I speak from my body? It's almost adding a different language. You're teaching them a language when you're saying, feel the couch, when you're saying, what do you see with your eyes? So it isn't just about relaxing. If you said, can you just relax? And we can, for the moment, feel our bodies calm. That doesn't mean we're actually connected to our body at all. Sometimes what that means is, you know, oh, I will relax by just basically numbing out. Right. Not actually fully embodying in a relaxed state. And so we're really wanting to make sure that we're tracking that and we're making sure before I'm asking someone to change, I got to make sure they are actually where they are. Right. And how do we land before we try and go somewhere else? And far too often, we're just so focused on, can we get them to think differently and force their body to do something differently? This whole like, you know, mechanical eating. And this is one reason why people go into treatment. They get, you know, either weight restored or they stop purging or they finish, you know, their meals and they aren't binging in between. And then they get out and they can't maintain it. 
So we haven't really built the somatic scaffold to support that. I love the somatic scaffolding. Why is it so important to talk about attachment when you're talking about eating disorders? I think the simple reason is that it's neurologically linked. Our capacity for attachment experience and our capacity for digestion is neurologically linked. We are mammals. (laughs) Without an attachment relationship, neurologically, we don't get to eat, right? Right. (laughs) And, And so a lot of our training, we really take people into feeling that in our bodies is how linked they are and how our sense of safety is a combination of things. One, it is the absence of danger, but it's also the presence of a nurturing other. So we need not only protection, we need nurturance as well, right? So neurologically, it's linked, and that's part of what the polyvagal theory talks about. And so we look at the different rules or different ways that people adapt or navigate the attachment relationship and how that is reflected in eating disorders or in our relationship with food. Well, absolutely, because when you're bringing up the nurturing, I mean, we are completely 100% dependent on the food and the nurturance from our attachment figures and how we relate to that to create safety and openness in our body. I guess that dovetails when you speak about part of the treatment strategy is to include the family. Can you speak a little bit more about bringing the family into treatment with eating disorders? I'll say a few words. So in traditional eating disorder treatment, person is dropped off at the treatment center and they are the identified patient. So we want to flip that to see the person in the context of their environment and to look at the attachment system of everyone in the family, because the parent's attachment system and their capacity to be the primary regulator to help support the client and developing that capacity for co-regulation, it's still super important. So if we just treat the client and help that client develop regulatory capacity, but the family system is not supported, then we're just helping them in the office and then sending them out a system that has struggles. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to treat the whole system and to assess everyone's capacity for co-regulation and regulation in general. Because if, you know, I have clients, if mom is anxious, the Mm -hmm. client can still enter a neurocept, some anxiety in the field. Mm -hmm. And that experience at a visceral level impacts the client's capacity to eat. I can't eat if I'm sitting next to a mom who's super anxious. But if mom is calm and centered and regulated, there's space, and then I can eat too. So you will actually work with the family to help them with their own sense of regulation? Is that what you're saying? Their own sense of being able to be aware of their own... Yes. Mm-hmm. When I was working with families at a treatment center, one of the first things I would ask is I'd ask everybody, how do you deal with fear? Because mm-hmm. that's really what's happening is that with eating disorders, everybody, everybody is organized in a fear response and yet trying to get on with activities of daily life that kind of require us to not be afraid but everything in our body is running on a fear setting. And so I really, you know, just say like, how do you, you know, and some people are like, well, I just suck it up and I just keep going, you know, or other people are like, you know, I cry and I scream and I get nervous about everything and I worry every time somebody, you know, doesn't look at me. And that kind of goes into like, you know, are people, you know, avoidant or are they ambivalent attachment strategies? Are they, you know, overbounded or underbounded? And so we really look at this, you know, what are people's styles and how do we not be afraid of fear? which allows fear to be what it's supposed to be, which is just a warning signal that there's something that we need to pay attention to. And then we can effectively act, right? But because it snowballs so often, it just becomes this, this quagmire of strategies. And the whole family is afraid of acknowledging that they're afraid. Oh, makes a lot of sense. So we try and unwind that a little bit. 
Imagine the family, especially with somebody in treatment for an eating disorder, is dealing with a lot of their own conflict within themselves about what messages they send about eating, how do they contribute, and a lot of misunderstandings about this. And so I imagine it's a pretty tall order to help the fear be recognized and accepted and part of their system, and then to allow them to not be afraid of it and to engage together in co-regulation and understanding their own selves. Exactly. And there's very few things that are more frightening than Mm. sitting across the table from somebody who you love, who is unable to eat their food or is not present when they're eating their food. You know, Mm -hmm. you can see the dysregulation and the dissociation you know, in your loved one. And it's terrifying. And especially because the message is so often, this can be a fatal disease, you know, so everybody's so scared. And it's very hard to be curious when you're afraid. It's not hard. It's impossible to be curious when you're afraid. And if we aren't able to be curious, then we can't listen to the wisdom of the body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can feel that. And I can imagine coming home and being across from somebody who you know it feels like a life or death situation that your body and to not send the message of observing them and being watched and being you know if they're not integrated into the treatment process of being aware of their own body what they could communicate and I would think really be counterproductive in the progress that treatment may have helped their loved one get in terms of their own embodiment if they don't have a level of awareness how counterproductive that can be. It's really... Yeah. I've yet to see anybody effectively scare somebody out of being afraid. (laughs) Yeah. That just doesn't work. (laughs) Quit doing that. It doesn't work. But you you gave a beautiful just example of what we're trying to do. So for individuals out there that... It feels like that y'all have been able to teach us so much just about the integration of our own physiological system and our own attachment styles and our own relationship to food, because we all have a relationship to food related on our attachment histories, whether it's grown into a disorder or whether it's our relationship to food. So for any listeners out there that have experience of dysfunctional experiences, disordered experiences with food that have not necessarily developed an eating disorder, maybe binge eating, chronic binge eating, not being able to get a hold of weight through healthy eating, et cetera. Do you have anything that you would suggest or want to give to listeners out there on that? Yeah, I think it's perfectly normal to reach for food and different things to regulate ourselves for a short period of time. And that's not disordered, right? That's using a variety of strategies to regulate. And food, because it's a sensory, you know, and and certainly there can be cultural and associations with food. And certain foods actually work really well, like chocolate (laughs) is a pretty good regulator. But when it becomes chronic... When it becomes your only choice of regulation, when you find yourself feeling heightened anxiety or being unable to attend events because of the food piece or the body shame, when there's no scaffolding there in the relational system, so there's no reaching out for support, there's no co-regulation, then we become more entrenched in these disorders. What we try to do for the average person is support them in enhancing the embodiment of any body that they're in, regardless of shape, regardless of size, regardless of color, and look at how do they approach the relationship with movement, with food, in a celebratory way, in an embodied way. And our challenge is not necessarily with the individual in that case. The challenge may be in the culture, in our culture's perception of what is healthy and unhealthy that might drive someone to diet or do things in order to fit in with cultural ideals. So the work with that type of client is helping them to feel okay in the body that they have, regardless of what culture says. That would be where you would suggest everybody start getting comfortable or being aware of and into the body that they have. Is that what you're saying, rather than the idea of trying to control or hold themselves to an image of who they should be? I often allow myself to ask questions, you know, even when I'm doing this, you know, it's like I, for me, it becomes an issue when I'm reaching for something 
you know, maybe I'm eating some food because I'm wanting a certain experience and I'm not quite getting it. And I'm, you know, and so I'm reaching for something else or I'm reaching for something else or I'm pushing everything away or whatever it is, is for me to really ask myself, what am I hungry for? Really hungry for. And like, I know Anita does this work a lot. Anita Johnson's like, what is the quality of what I'm reaching for? What is the quality of how I'm reaching? Am I reaching for what I really want or am I reaching for what's convenient? Or what am I reaching for what I don't think somebody is going to shame me for, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what I really want is this, but I'm going to reach for this because that's what I think somebody else wants me to want. You know, it's like asking myself those questions and seeing, well, okay, this is what's happening on a food level. What's happening on a soul level? Helping somebody to really kind of slow down, kind of getting back to that concept of yield, you mean? I guess I'm just sort of bringing that in, but the idea of coming back into holding myself of what is it that I'm reaching for? Is that what you're saying to kind of really get to a place of slowing down and being in the body in that moment? Right, right. Listening to my body's wisdom and how it's talking to me, how is it telling my story of I'm reaching for something and it's not there. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. Oh, I'm lonely. Oh, oh, I'm lonely. Well, what's my relationship with lonely? Instead of doing something to make that go away, well, how do I build a relationship with that? Oh, well, you know, maybe it means I have a greater capacity for engaging than I'm currently engaging. Okay, well, that's what lonely means. You know, so it's just, it's just a different way to get to what's really driving me as a human being. And how to sit with it and really be aware of it. Yeah. Be curious about it. Be curious and yes. befriend it. You know, not just sit in it and dwell in it and wallow or be submerged in it, right? It's like, how do I, how do I be curious and befriend it? And it's not easy. You mentioned that before, and we just talked about that in another podcast. Just the idea of being curious can be really challenging. It sounds easy to be curious, but it often isn't because it can bring all sorts of things up that you become aware is why am I reaching for this? Why do I find myself in this place in time in my life binging quite a bit? And to let ourselves be curious and to sit with that is, can be really challenging. Building the capacity for compassionate curiosity rather yes. than fearful curiosity. It, yes. That's something that we have to cultivate. That not everything out there is around an eating disorder, but we can have disordered type of eating or the use of anything, whether it be food or exercise, that to really get insightful that it might be helpful to reach out to other people, reach out to somebody, go to a therapist and be able to get in touch with what y'all have brought up, the more embodied approach that it's not just a head game and it's not just telling yourself to stop, do it every Monday, you know, every Monday I'm going to start and now I'm going to eat healthy, but yet we don't, right? To get in touch with that and reach out to explore it on some of these levels that y'all so beautifully outlined from the attachment perspective, from the defensive perspective, from the sensory perspective, and be able to be curious and get to know those different elements of us. So appreciate the two of you coming on the show. Y'all have just been amazing and insightful. Tell us a little bit about how somebody could reach you. And I know that also you both do trainings because we've just been able to touch the surface. We could talk for hours about this. If somebody wanted to get more training or more insight, where would they find you? We have a website, www.embodiedrecovery.org. And on that website, it will list our most current trainings. 2019 and 2020 are already listed. And so that would be trainings for therapists. You have trainings both for therapists who don't have a lot of eating disorder specialty, but have people that they're working with on their caseload. So you can do some training in that as well as individuals that are trained in eating disorder, but want to learn more about your approach. So both of those kind of trainings are available. We have our individual practices at the moment. And because of the hub that we live in in North Carolina, we have access to dietitians and OTs that are trained in this model. So those that are local can have a full spectrum of treatment. Uh But beyond that, there's no treatment center per se. Thank you so very much. This is really wonderful to talk with you. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. And 
I'm hoping to bring you even more. We've just barely covered the surface on such an important topic, and there's so much more to go into. So plan ahead that we're probably going to bring you more on this amazing topic. So before we say goodbye, super important, we really appreciate our Patreon members. And for those of you that this podcast brings you something really important to you or your family members and you really feel like you gain, the one way you could really help us continue to get this information out to you and to those worldwide is to help support us. And one way that you can do that is becoming a Patreon member. For those that have done that, we so appreciate it. We want to do a shout out. And those of you that are interested, it could really help us cover our cost. And you would go to patreon.com slash therapist uncensored. So a big shout out again to our platinum members, Cindy Geist and Lena and our gold members. That's Lacey Largent, Rashmika, Amy Lewis, Liz Young, Jade Hewitt, and Karen Conyon. So thank you much those gold members. And for our neuro nerds, we have Michelle Wright, Sonia Richardson Thomas, Mary Schultz, Kate Locke, MindLearn, Larry Ford, Ashley Ford, and David. So to all of you, we are so incredibly grateful that you're helping us bring such a, what we find, important information to those out there. So thank you so much, and we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.